Find Luke chapter 16, beginning if you would in your Bible. Luke chapter 16, I read a story from a man named Jerry Vines, who was a past president of the Southern Baptist Convention from many years ago. He pastored his first church eight So he went to the wise man in the, that little church and he asked him for $5 to get those kids to camp. Vine said he looked like he had a gallbladder attack. And said, Preacher, you have to understand, you can't do that. I just bought a brand new Cadillac and those things are really expensive. We spend a significant part of our life pursuing money. And that's because we we need about money. Money is the most vital substance on earth. It can push you and us. The Bible can testify against us and consume our flesh like fire. In this passage, you'll see that the way we steward money can help people be saved, reward in heaven, and reveal who your Lord really is. The light just came on, so pay attention. You know, it darkened and then it lightened. This parable is encouraging. It's also convicting. And it's highly consequential. On the surface, this might be the most of all of Jesus' parables. But I think in a few minutes, it'll be really clear. And I believe that this morning, there will be people who will be saved. Others will grow spiritually. Others will repent. Some of us will reevaluate things. And we'll all have a better understanding of how the Lord Jesus wants us our wealth. Read with me Luke chapter 16 beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, now he, referring to Jesus, he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and this manager was reported to him as squandering possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since Man, I'm not strong enough. I'm ashamed to beg. I'll do so. I'm removed. People will welcome your home. And each one of his masters, and he began the first, How much do you do? And he said, uh, Boy, quickly and empty. And how much do you? And he said, Hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own than the sons of life. I say to you, remember he's talking to the disciples. Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. He was talking to his disciples, which magnifies the problem, because on the surface it appears 
Here's Jesus is commending dishonesty. So let's just walk through these verses, and then we'll look at three applications this morning. Look at verse 1. A manager was poorly stewarding a wealthy man's holdings. Verse 2. said, you can no longer be manager. He's going to be fired. Verse 3. The manager has no safety net. In his position, more than likely, he would have lived on the wealthy man's estate. So he's facing homeless poverty. And he has a very clear assessment. He says, I'm ashamed to beg. That would fit me. Or he could essentially mark no moral authority to do this, but he's not moral. His boss is no problem to him as long as his actions might benefit him in the future. The only person he's concerned about is him. And the effects of these write offs about 175 oil, the yield of 20 or so olive trees. So this manager, who was going to be fired, said, Sit down quickly and cut your bill in half. He knew it wouldn't be long before he was found out. There may have been a con. And at the authority changes. This is why corporations escort people out of the building when they're fired. Verse 7 to another, he said, Take off 20 measures of wheat. That was three months of wages at the least. His motivation was not to bless them, his motivation was to use them. He wants to curry their favor in order to receive a favor in the future because it's human nature. If they feel indebted to him, they're more likely to do something for him. Now, this is the way the world works. Many people will do what is dishonest or disingenuous to get money and use people. We all understand this. There's no naivety. Problem starts in verse 8. Look at it. Master He'd acted shortly. money? So how do we explain this? Well, remember, these are two worldly men. In verse 8, Jesus called them the sons of age. Then he said, the sons of age are more. So he's making a clear contrast. We've got the sons of this age versus the sons of light. He says the sons of this age are described as... That refers to... I looked the definition up. That refers to practical dealing in relationship with others. Not honest dealing, not moral dealing, just practical. So here's what A wealthy man recognized the shrewd, albeit dishonest deeds of another worldly man who used the ways of the world to better his own future. If we put it in modern terms, like saying, the master saying to the unrighteous steward, it would be like him saying, you know, that's good work, man. Now, you're a dishonest, incompetent liar, but you do know how to pad your own nest. So in verse 8, Jesus is not commending action. He's creating this contrast Shrewd and worldly people will do almost anything to secure a material future. But he says, believers, sons of light, using their empathy plan, eternal. They often 
practical wisdom. Jesus used people to tell his disciples who were poor how to have true riches. That leaves us with at least three questions we need to answer as we try to apply. need to be mind Jesus said and I say to you to the disciples make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails they will receive you into the eternal dwellings refer to people now there are interpretations of this I read that the word friends refers to the Trinity to the heavenly host I think if we just use simple common sense it refers to people eternal dwellings Jesus said, in my house are many dwelling places. He's speaking of heaven. So look at the phrase, receive. Now, I don't know how literally to take this or not, because this is a parable, but what he's saying in so many words are this. There are believers who are in heaven because you stewarded your wealth that helped introduce them to Jesus. That, of course, brings up the matter of giving. It is impossible to separate the way you handle your finances from your faith. A third of Jesus' parables refer to possessions. One in six verses in the gospel possessions. I didn't fact those stats. If they're off, they're pretty close. It makes important for pastors to preach stewardship from time to time. Bible, spirit of our walk with Jesus. Now, if you're financially, never, never give out of guilt. You give out of grace. And if you're part of West Haven, you know we never pray. In this, there are all say, that's it. I knew it. The church is just after my money. If that's you, now I don't mean this rudely. I just mean it, in fact, I mean it politely. If you believe that, please keep it. Don't give it. Not not. not we don't want opinion of preachers is like a teenage girl telling her dad about how wonderful her boyfriend is she said he's friendly he's smart he's attractive he's got a work ethic he's he's kind and unimpressed her dad said does he have any money and his daughter said oh dad you men are all alike he asked the same thing about We are far more concerned about Jesus and you than you and your money. And we want you to have a love relationship with that what he gave to salvation is far more than to him. When you give to the church, you give three reasons. So that the church gave, so that the gospel can be saved. Let's just go through all three. Number one, you give so the church will be propagated. The gospel spread through local churches all around the world. That was Jesus' intention. And you know, we're in such a cynical age. And so many are down on the Lord. I want to kind of prove to the quiet. So easy. It's just in our nature to be critical of anything and anyone. And we live in this day of hyper-criticism. I think if I posted on Facebook, Jesus loves you, I think three posts later it would be some kind of a, yeah, well, you 
believe this, and you you support Donald Trump, and you were you support Joe Biden, and you. But I just said Jesus loves you. I mean, that's how, that's how critical people are today. So first, I want you to realize that everybody in the church, now this is going to be a shocker, everybody in the church has issues. And at you, there's a mirror in front of the pulpit now, and it's this way. It's a saying, but they really Museum for nor better than anyone here, and there are people who say, "Yeah, but I'm saved, but I don't need the church." I mean, my church is the sunrise, my church is the lake, or I can't find a church good fit. Find a church where the says it for that church too. Wife laughed. Did you hear that? So to the person, maybe. This is a talking point for you, but to the person who says, I don't need a church, therefore, why would I even think about giving to one? It would just be good to answer the question. Outside of a church, how do the Great Commission? In fact, it is. Who have you led to Jesus by yourself in the past year? Who are you helping grow in Christ? Who are you sacrificially serving? Obeying the biblical How are you commands Bible ships with people in the local church? I can love my family and I love my neighbor. But how are you loving your brothers and sisters in the same church? You see, and they've got some issues. Go back to point one. You have issues. How are you getting the gospel to children the next generation? How will your children and grandchildren hear the gospel? When a country's churches die, the gospel is not preached. Jesus created the church so the gospel would be preached. And without the sanctifying influence of the church, what kind of a world will your children grow up in? It's been well said that as a pulpit, the pulpit isn't going too well right now. And you say, well, that's true. I'm trying to lighten this up a little bit. Hang in there with me. Heart for Jesus, the church. You know, I'm looking out at you. Some of you came to, many of you came to Jesus through the ministry of this church. I baptized a lot of you. Without the local church, you and I would have never met. So without the local church, how baptism? So we the church. We properly do the God disseminated. It takes print Bible, use up the date. Those who preach the God, I don't apologize. It takes money to build buildings that are visible, tangible, places where we hospitality. This building, it's almost. Those of you who are here, Nathan shaking his head up and down. Poor Kirk is like crazy trying to get it all. I want to show the world the love of Jesus, letting one of the that. And we support many Hispanic churches we planted in the almost the ethnic church center at two South. 
today. We support a church in Alaska, Insight Women's Ministries. We've gotten the gospel to southern Mexico. We're out in the community in so many ways. And I could keep going, but we give so the gospel will be disseminated. And then we give so unbelievers will be saved. It goes like this. It's very simple. A church preaches the gospel. People hear it. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of the Lord. And the Spirit of God and the Word of God combine to bring a lost man or woman to the Son of God so he or she can grow into being a man or woman of God. It's that simple. The world uses their wealth for future temporal gain. The believer uses his wealth for eternal spiritual gain. What a blessing it is that we can do that. But there's another question here. Verse 9 calls wealth unrighteous, but wealth is neutral. So what does he mean? He's simply describing the way the world often gains it or the way the world often uses it. We can use wealth righteously. We can use it for the advance of the kingdom. But then notice in verse 9 it says this wealth fails. Well, when does it fail and how does it fail? It fails the day you die. It can't help you at all. Proverbs says, riches do not profit in the day of wrath. Before you die, if you've stewarded wealth for God's kingdom, the blessings you receive will be beyond our comprehension. On the other hand, if believers use wealth like the world uses it, that money not only fails. James chapter 5 says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. That's why I say money might be the most volatile substance on earth. The best financial planner in the world is Jesus. And the best financial move you can make is to invest in appreciating assets. But here we run into another problem, because let's just be practical. We have to use money for self. We have to save to plan for the future. How do we find a balance in all this? John Wesley put it perfectly. He said, gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Gain all you can. Ambition is good. Work is good. Gaining wealth and assets is good. In fact, when you think about financial matters, think about the background of so many Old and New Testament stories and the book of Proverbs. They're portrayed under the backdrop of capitalism. For example, fair weights and measures. That, that's a capitalistic situation. So we're in a capitalistic society. Go for it. Gain all you can. Secondly, save all you can. Don't hoard, but save. And then number three, give all you can. And giving has less than nothing about how much you have. The amount is not the issue. It is never the issue. Your heart is the issue. Your heart drives what you do. Giving out of wealth is not hard. Giving out of lack is hard. In God's eyes, if you have a million dollars and you give a hundred thousand, that's much less than the person who has a thousand and gives a hundred. If you're generous with what you have, even if it is comparatively little, God rewards what's in your heart. God always looks at the heart. And people often say, I can't give. And, and, and there are situations where that's true. I recognize that. But I want to tell you about a conversation I had last year with a member of another church. He's not a member of this church. He never was. He's a layman. He's not a pastor. He's not a former pastor. He's not, as the Old Testament would say, the son of a, a prophet. He's, he's just a regular dude. We started talking about giving, and he brought this up, not me. 
You're not going to like this. But he said it. I'll give you his name. I got his number if you want it. He said, people often say to us, where did you go on vacation last year? And I say, we usually don't go on vacation. And people say, why not? And he says, because we give. Do you see his point? He said he and his wife don't go on annual vacations so they can have the money to give generously to their church. I asked him to move his membership here. I didn't. <laughs> you all really need to lighten up. Here's his point. Because some of y'all are going to send me an email and go, I go on vacation if I want that. Rewind the tape. That's not what I said. The point is that most American Christians will have to give something up in our Western lifestyle in order to give. To give generously, something will have to go. You say, well, that's just what that guy said. C.S. Lewis said this. If our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, and amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. That's why point number one is this. Do your plans need to be altered? Number two, is your character being tested? Verse 10, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Faithful. You know, these were among the many verses that convicted Tara and I when we were first married. That's why we tithed from day one. God will supply your need. Jesus said, Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. His provision may not be according to Western standards, but he will add what you need. And sometimes someone will say, but yeah, but at the end of a person's life, I mean, they, they, they didn't have what they need. That's because it was time for them to go home. Jesus used this principle to talk about money, but this transcends money. In any area of your life, be faithful in the small stuff first. You're not ready for bigger things until you're faithful in the small things. Stay faithful in the small things, and God will see to it that you're given bigger things if that's His will. Verse 11, if you've not been faithful with unrighteous wealth, then who will entrust the true riches to you? So here's another question. What does Jesus mean by true riches? This was another one where commentaries were all over the board. Some said it means reign over angels and kingdoms in heaven. Others said it just means future service in the heaven. I'm pretty simple, so I think it's simpler than that. True riches are what Jesus gives to us that we don't naturally come by, like contentment with what you have, peace that God will give you in the midst of a storm. And it could be that you're someone who you like to spend, and you spend money and you spend money, and there's a reason you spend. It's because deep down inside, you're not content. And you think, you know, if I just spend a little bit more, then I'll be content. And it's kind of like a hamster on a wheel, isn't it? Maybe, maybe if with the heart of Jesus, you decided to give to the work of Jesus, you would no longer want to spend because then you would be content. Are you faithful in little things? 
It could be your character is being tested. Do your plans need to be altered? Is your character being tested? Number three, is your heart currently divided? Verse 13, is your heart currently divided? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The way you steward your money reveals who your master is. And this verse is not a matter of advisability. Otherwise, it would say you should not serve both God and money. It's not a question of accountability. Otherwise, it would say you must not serve both God and money. It's a matter of impossibility. You can't do both. If Jesus is our master, money will be our servant, and our resources will always be his, and there won't be this stress over giving. If Jesus is not your master, you will be money's servant, and money is a mean master. It creates stress. It creates false guilt. And taken far enough, it'll leave you eternally bankrupt. I really want you to hear me this morning. Do not be deceived by the idea that you can use money and use people like the world and claim Jesus and still have hope. Now, you're saved by grace, not by works. But saving grace changes lives. I'm going to give you six biblical cautionary examples. We'll go through them quickly. Example one. In the parable of the soils, riches and the pursuit of pleasure prevented a man from coming to eternal life. Number two, Luke 14, 33. Jesus said, So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up or renounce all of his possessions. Now, he didn't mean give your possessions away. He meant transfer ownership of them to him in an irrevocable trust. You're the trustee, but you're bound by the terms of the trust that Jesus established. Number three, the rich young ruler walked away from eternal life because of his wealth. Example four, Jesus said, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. A camel can't go through the eye of a needle. Jesus later explained that all things are possible with God, but that camel statement is shocking because it's intended to be shocking. Example number five, a farmer was rich toward his business, which is great, but he wasn't rich toward God. And Jesus said, you fool, tonight your life is required of you. And example six, Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it, not necessarily possessing it, some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. Now at this point, what do you do if inside you've said, you know, I've not handled wealth rightly? Remember that the gospel is always redemptive. It's simply this, acknowledge it, ask Jesus for forgiveness, and today begin to use your wealth and possessions like a son of light. There's total forgiveness for anything and everything in the Lord Jesus Christ. The positive message here is that you can love Jesus, and you can master money, and you can use money for yourself, and you can save money and have no guilt about it. How does that happen? It's simply by bowing to the Lordship of Jesus. Jesus demanded more loyalty than any dictator in the world, and he is the only one who had the right to do so. And you and I have given him thousands of reasons to turn against us, but he never will. 
But the internal battle over his lordship never stops. And money is so powerful, it has such a draw on each one of us. Jesus says, give your heart to me. Money says, no, 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 your heart belongs to me. The Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. Money says, no, 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 more of me brings contentment a great gain. Jesus said, whoever loves money never has enough. Money says, pursue me more and then you'll have enough. And the famous quote, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than receive. Money says, it is more blessed to receive than give. Who's your master? Notice Jesus said, you'll love one and despise the other. Money has this extreme power. It can be a rival to Jesus. But friend, it's not evil, but it can be a rival. And Jesus will have no rivals, none. He is king. Here's the best illustration I can think of, and it's not a very good one. But let's say that I used to date a girl before Tara and I. She looked at me like, what? <laughs> let's say I used to date a girl before Tara and I, and I really like this girl. And then I meet Tara. I'm done with the first girl, not interested, don't call me, don't talk to me, I only have one love. That's the way our love is for Jesus. So this, in a sense, if you drill down to the bottom line, it's not about stewarding money for eternity as much as it is having a heart for Jesus and having the heart of Jesus. You can only have one master in this life, and you have one right now that is above all others who or what is it jesus is the one who has given us more than any other he gave his life so we can have eternal life and friend maybe you know of him but you don't know him as your lord and savior you've gone through all the the rituals you've gone through all the rites you you you've you've done all the things that you've been told to do but the one thing that you've never done is acknowledge your sin and turn to Him in complete faith for salvation. Not faith plus works. Total faith in Him. Then the invitation is simply this. Come to Him today, repenting of your sin and believing upon Him. There was a great evangelist this week who died. His name was Junior Hill. I'm really curious, how many of you have heard of Junior Hill? Hold your hand up for a second. A little, wow, that's unfortunate, just a few. He was, he was absolutely amazing, but he died. He was in his 80s. That sort of thing happens. I read a story this week about his brother who was lost attending a revival service he preached. He said the Holy Spirit convicted his brother. He said from the pulpit he could see that his brother was shaken up. So he went and talked to his brother after the service. He said, yeah, I, I am shaken up. I I know I need to be saved. I, I don't have any doubt about it. So Junior Hill said, then let's believe on him right now. He said, not yet. Not yet. I, there's things I need to take care of, but not yet. A few days later, he went fishing and died of a heart attack. Eternity is real. And you believe that or you wouldn't be here today. But if you're here today and you know in your heart that you've never been saved then don't miss this opportunity right now you strike while the iron is hot you say well i'm not sure how to do that then then just scan that qr code fill that form out we'll be in touch with you hopefully by tomorrow 
And you say, well, I'm, I'm, some of you are new to West Haven, but many of you have heard my story a million times. But I remember when I was under conviction to be saved, I was thought everybody was looking at me. One day I'm sitting in the balcony of this church in the front row, and I thought, everybody's looking back at me. <laughs> Nobody, of course, was. But that's one of the things the devil tries to pull you into the fire at the last second. So he'll, he'll put any kind of crazy thought in your mind. Don't worry about who sees you. Take that phone and scan that QR code. Complete that card and give it to one of us. Talk to one of us. Talk to someone near you. Salvation matters. You say, you know, I'm not really sure where I stand. Let me explain salvation in a different way. Salvation means Jesus has captured your mind. He's won your heart. He's your master. He's realigned your will. Your faith for salvation is solely in Him. You know there's nothing you can do to earn it. You believe that He's already earned it for you. You believe that and you trust in Him. That's what salvation looks like. So if you've never been saved, we invite you to do that today.